Welcome to Songcraft. I'm Scott B. Bomar. And I'm Paul Duncan. Songcraft is the show that brings you in-depth conversations with the creators of great songs, from the ones you know and love to the ones you should know. Be sure to subscribe to the show via iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and visit us at songcraftshow.com. I should have known I should have, but I didn't know you wouldn't be back, and there's nothing I You're listening to Sunshine and Rainbows, the title track from singer-songwriter Jamie Floyd's 2016 debut EP. The West Palm Beach, Florida native grew up in a musical family where she had the opportunity to perform as an opening act for Rascal Flatts, James Taylor, and others. By the age of 11, she'd signed her first production and publishing deals, eventually relocating to Nashville where she found success writing for other artists. She's best known as the co-writer of The Blade, which became the title track to Ashley Monroe's 2015 album and was named one of the top songs of the year by NPR Music. Co-produced by Vince Gill and featuring a guest appearance by Miranda Lambert, the song became the album's centerpiece and helped earn the project a Grammy nomination for Best Country Album of the Year. Others who've recorded Floyd's songs include former Brooks and Dunn frontman Ronnie Dunn, who featured the song once on his debut solo album, which went to the number one spot on the Billboard Country Chart in 2011. Jamie's song Trouble Get Me Off Your Mind was performed by R&B powerhouse Brian McKnight in Dolly Parton's 2013 TV film A Country Christmas Story, while Hayden Panettiere's character Juliet Barnes performed Jamie's Mississippi Flood on the hit ABC television series Nashville. Floyd's songs have also been heard on MTV's Finding Carter, Lifetime's The Client List, The CW Network's Beauty and the Beast, and the Lifetime original movie Manson's Lost Girls. The CSAC honoree has enjoyed her cross-genre success by writing songs by day and waiting tables by night. The hard-working dual-career up-and-comer is a model for what it takes to carve out a space in Nashville's increasingly competitive musical landscape. With her Sunshine and Rainbows EP attracting new fans and increased industry attention, Jamie Floyd is one to watch. Well, Jamie Floyd is a friend of mine, somebody that I've had the chance to write with a bunch, uh, and I, I really have enjoyed my time with Jamie and getting to know her. And one of the things about her, even with the success that she's having, having some really big songs happening, she's always been the same person. You know, she's always been grounded and cool, to the point that she is still waiting tables. Right. You know, and a lot of people I think have this idea of you know what it what it looks like, the life of a hit songwriter. Um, that maybe you're just sort of like living in your nice mansion somewhere and you just sort of like roll out of bed into a, a uh, hit session every morning and that's just what you do all the time you just right. sit around and think meanwhile jamie's still grinding and working and and making it happen both in the songwriting world and outside of it waiting tables right um which is pretty cool i mean it, it there's a parallel there of course to the work ethic that it takes to grind and keep going in the songwriting world itself but there's also something you know people tend to think I'm going to quit my day job and pursue music. But sometimes it's more like I'm going to get a day job so that I can pursue music. Right, right. Yeah, I remember uh, a few years ago there was a kid who was, I think, maybe like college age. And I knew his parents and his mom asked me to take him out to lunch and dissuade him from going into the into the music business. That's huh. that was his goal. And she wanted me to, like, talk him out of it. And I, you know, I couldn't really in good conscience do that. But I told him, I said, look, man, if you're dedicating your life to music, um, you're going to do music. Like Nobody's going to be able to stop you from doing it. That right. might mean that you become very successful and famous. Right. It also might mean that you wait tables for the rest of your life 
to enable you right. to be able to go and make music and and having being a, a good musician or a good songwriter takes work ethic and so the type of person who's willing to say yeah i'm gonna work hard at a job that probably takes a lot of energy being on your feet and serving customers um and i'm still going to be a songwriter you know uh and i'm going to do that in order that i can be a songwriter they're probably going to be a great songwriter because they right. got work ethic you know and and so there's an element that exists and it's here in la when you say oh if you go somewhere the person that's you know pouring you a drink or that's parking your car maybe that's somebody who's an aspiring actor right right and in nashville you, you would say the same thing maybe that person is an aspiring songwriter maybe they're already a hit songwriter. Right. You know, I mean, it, it right. could be that you go somewhere to hear some music and the person that serves you a beer is already killing it in the songwriting game and you don't know it. Yeah. It, it's sort of a message of, you know, hey, look, treat everybody equally because you never know, you know, what somebody around you is doing, what they're up to, what they're capable of. You know, there's some really talented, productive people that are working in all forms of life around you and you may not recognize it. Right. You know how you get a, a songwriter off your porch? How's that? Pay him for the pizza. Ah, <laughs> that's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. So that's, that's a classic. No, I, you make a good point about uh, treat everyone with respect. You know, unfortunately, the entertainment business is a business where people like to try to suck up to the right people. Right. Um, I had kind of a funny story that uh, I may have shared with you before, but. Um, Years ago, when I was pursuing songwriting as a career before I got into the business side of music, um, I was at a writer function. I think it was kind of a brunch sort of thing at a country club in Nashville. And the point was to sort of allow the various writers who were signed to the publishing company I was with the opportunity to kind of network and get to know each other right. and, and, you know, make connections and possibly you know, build relationships that would lead to, to co-writes and that sort of right. thing. So I was going down this buffet line, getting my food, and there was a woman across from me. And I said, oh, how long have, have you been a writer here? And um, she said, oh, it's I'm not the writer. It's my daughter. Hmm. And I looked over, and next to her was a young girl who looked to me to be about 13 or 14 years old. Hmm. And... I thought the lady was kidding at first, like that your daughter is the writer and not you. Right. So I was kind of like, Oh, um, okay, cool. Hi, I'm Scott. Oh, hi Scott. I'm, I'm Taylor Swift. <laughs> so we kind of get down to right. the end of the line. Of course, nobody's heard of Taylor Swift at this, at this point in time. Right. We get down to the end of the line and Taylor and her mom are like, Oh, would you like to, to come sit with us? <laughs> now me being the, the schemer thought, why am I going to go waste my time? to right. sit with this 13 year old kid that probably got signed as a favor to somebody yeah. and is never going to go anywhere yeah. when I should go over and sit with some of these older guys that I want to try to, to write with. Right. And you know, and so I can go germ up to them a little bit. And you were so right. <laughs> I made the right decision. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, and that's why I'm not a songwriter today. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> you never know if the gangly girl in line with you at a buffet who invited you to come sit at her table is the next Taylor Swift. You never know if the girl right. pouring your beer at the bar uh, actually has already written some successful songs. Right. Um, so there really is uh, an important lesson there in like we all have to not get um, clouded in this business of thinking I need to 
coordinate with people who are strategic and important right. to me. Cause you never know, uh, when you try to live your life in such a way of like, how can I connect with this person? No matter who they are, right. you never know what that might lead to. Some sure. will be dead ends and some could be, you know, huge successes. And you know, for anybody that's not able to tell just through the, the, the medium of, of podcast audio, that was sarcasm. I don't think you made the right choice. I think that not sitting down with Taylor Swift at that time was just an egregious mistake on your part. I think had I simply sat down with Taylor Swift that day, we would have really bonded because right. I, of course, have a lot in common with 13-year-old right. girls. Uh, we would have written a ton of hit songs together. I think you would have probably played the Max Martin role. I, I probably would have, and I wouldn't be sitting in this hot house with this bald guy <laughs> talking into a microphone doing this podcast right now I would be in my pool you know what you did make the right choice <laughs> let's listen to Jamie Floyd yep Jamie welcome to Songcraft thank you thanks for having me well, you've been writing songs for a long time, but every professional songwriter who succeeds has that, that one song or that one moment that's kind of a game changer. And uh, many of the people that we talk to on this show um, have to think back for many years to when that game-changing moment happened, but um, it seems that yours was, was much more recent. Um, and I'm referring, of course, to The Blade, which was released by Ashley Monroe last year and was named one of the top songs of 2015 by NPR Music. Uh, the album, which is named after the song, went on to get nominated for a Best Country Album Grammy. Uh, so take us back to the day that the song was written and how that creative process unfolded. Well, um, I wrote this song with uh, Mark Beeson and Alan Shamblin, and uh, they are two of my favorite co-writers, and I had written with each of them separately and with other people, but never the three of us together prior to mm. us writing The Blade. And uh, we got together, I think the, the first day the three of us got together, we had started on a completely different song. As you sometimes do, the process, at least here, and at least in my experience, co-writing is very... Um, you just kind of see if you can get on something right. and yeah. uh, start working on it. You know, start woodshedding and just doing your thing. Um, and also getting to know the dynamic between whoever you're, between the people in the room. Sure. Um, again, I hadn't been with the both of them before, so we were kind of exploring that, too. Um, I believe Alan had said, well, I have this title um, or idea that I heard in a sermon um, where the preacher said, you know, sometimes in life you... You, with your problems and the things you're up against, sometimes you can catch it by the handle or you can catch it by the blade, and it's up to you to decide, you know, how it's going to affect you. And we were all like, huh. Yeah. <laughs> and um, we had to wrap up for that day, but we were, we at least had that idea um, there, you know, that was kind of thrown out there. Yeah. So the next time we got together, we spent a lot of time on that, and, and we spent, I would say, the majority of the co-write, which sometimes co-writes can be a couple hours or they can be four or five hours and that was a four or five hour day mm. and we spent almost the entire time trying to figure out um how to say the caught it by the handle catch it by the blade um at first it was it was more broad the way the preacher had said it right. uh we were kind of like oh could this be like a life lesson song and somewhere in that mix we all kind of threw our two cents in um over all those hours but 
Um, I personally always gravitate toward the, <laughs> how can we make this very sad? <laughs> right. um, I just, I mean, when I connect to something emotionally, I, I don't know, I just kind of, um, I always love kind of going for uh, the, the, you know, sad as possible <laughs> emotion that I can get out of it. Um, <laughs> full disclosure, but anyway, um, I know that when we were, when we were talking about it, eventually we got to, okay, what if we put this in terms of love? Okay, and how would we do that? And we went around and around, and when finally we got the turn right, we, we got the, well, what if you caught it by the handle, but I caught it by the blade? Mm-hmm. And then when we had finally gotten to that point, which took many hours, um, we all were kind of staring at each other like, oh, yeah, that yeah. is it. Right. And yeah. then the rest of the song kind of followed very quickly. Um, you know, we were kind of shouting lines at each other. Mark had started to play that um, that melody, mm-hmm. that that um, melodic hook of it. Right. Um, da 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 He started playing that, and it was so beautiful, and that kind of inspired the musical direction. I mean, when you feel like you've got on an idea that is a great idea, that's that's makes it easier to kind of spend those four or five hours because you're like, well, this is worth it. Exactly. It was worth spending the time on. We knew that. We knew we had something that was worth figuring out. Um, part of the reason I love working with Mark and Alan and a lot of the writers in their kind of class here in Nashville is because those guys wrote the songs that made me want to move here. Right. Yeah. And so I have found that working with people like them and Mark D. Sanders and Steve Seskin and a common denominator among all those guys would be that they're all willing to spend um, as much time as it possibly takes, even on the smallest detail. And I yeah. really tried to take that away, like take that as such a lesson from those yeah. guys because it, it really makes for um, a better song. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it does. And and some songs come quickly, but some that don't, some take a lot of time, some can take years, as, yeah. as you know, and um, it was just the fact that they're willing to sit there for five hours or five co-writes or whatever, just trying to perfect a hook or yeah. even trying to perfect the first line of the song, whatever it is, that was very valuable. Um, it was a valuable lesson, but it was also very valuable with this particular song because had we not taken the time we took, I don't, I don't know that it would have been the same. Mm. Well, you know, you, you you talk about those guys writing the songs that inspired you, and the blade is kind of becoming one of those songs now. You know, it, it hasn't been a big hit single yet, but it's one of those rare songs that kind of causes the larger songwriting community to sort of step back and go, "Man, that's a great song." But sometimes it takes a while, even for a song like that, to find its home. And I understand that Ashley wasn't the first to cut it. Um, tell us a little bit about the journey that that song took and how that felt watching it kind of take take that path. Yeah, well, first, thank you for saying that. That um, seems a little bit surreal to me. And um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I hope it does inspire people. I hope it touches people. Um, yeah. Basically, when all this happened, we, we wrote it in kind of the late spring of 2013. And um, I had just gotten out of the publishing deal I had been in for four years. And um, I was really trying to make things happen on my own. And I was really, I was newly inspired because um, I was going to do it myself. <laughs> that, that was my attitude. And uh, we write the song. I took it upon myself to go demo it. So I went in with Brad Hill, who I work with um, on my record and just in general demoing um, my songs over the years. And Brad and I produced the demo and, and got it to where uh, we wanted it to be. And then that demo was pitched 
uh, actually by my independent plugger at the time, to uh, Josh Leo, who was producing Love and Theft's new record. Mm-hmm. So um, they tell us that, you know, we'd like to cut it, and, and we just kind of go um, through that process with them. And um, to this day, I'm not actually sure specifically what happened, but I know right after they had recorded our song and done whatever recording that they were doing for the new project that um, I guess they may have parted ways with their label and just business-wise on their end. So that wasn't going to get released. You know, it was just kind of dead in the water at that point because of um, what they were dealing with on their business end. Um, So that was, of course, that was sad. Whenever you think, you know, you think you have a cut on a record and uh, you get excited and especially me because I, again, um, didn't have a deal. And so I go in in January of 2014 and I get ready to begin the process of cutting my project. And I just had always felt strongly about The Blade since we wrote it because I felt like it was my story and, and I really identified with it. Uh, Brad Hill and I, the same person who um, cut the demo with me, we went in and we cut it for my project. Mm. And uh, and then a couple months after that, we get a call that um, this person who is the tape copy uh, guy at Warner Brothers had played our demo of the Blade for the A and R at mm. Warner Brothers, mm. and it was his idea. He went up there and he told them, "You guys have to hear." the song that was very organic in that way which yeah. doesn't always happen but sometimes it still does and it right. did to us this song <laughs> yeah and um i don't know that they'd heard it before then but the story goes he goes up there and plays it for him and um i guess they play it for ashley play it for ashley's management and that is how that happened and then we wow. found out that vince gill and justin evening were producing it which was just yeah that's I was nice. finished at that point. At that point, I was like, "Okay," and everything I've ever wanted right. <laughs> is 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 over. I'm 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 through at this point. Uh, <laughs> and so um, that was just so special. And of course, you know, I've been a fan of Ashley's voice, and I've known of her around town for her writing abilities for many years. And uh, I was just really excited because I knew she was a great artist, and I knew she would deliver it. I, I knew yeah. she would. And you know, it's, it's, it's crazy. You look at something like that, that, you know, you, you think it's going to be one thing. It turns into another, it takes all this time. And then it, it finally does come out by the right artists, you know, and, and Ashley's album was, was on many critics best of the year lists. And, um, you know, Rolling Stone did a story on the song and, and on your career in the summer of 2015. And, and it's all very, you know, exciting and, and, and glamorous, um, but the real life of a working songwriter, as we all know, is not all accolades. Um, talk about a typical day in the life of a songwriter in the trenches like yourself. Well, like I said, I haven't had a publishing deal since the beginning of, right around the beginning of 2013. And um, there have been many years where I haven't as well, but this was the first time in a while that I hadn't, you know, had that have the deal, you know, and um, I I went back to waiting tables. I took a, um, I went back to the restaurant that had had me before I took my last publishing deal. And um, 
basically I've, I've been working full-time all these years, um, working in the restaurant while writing full-time. Basically, a day in the life would consist of, uh, <laughs> I, I usually have to go straight from one thing to the other. There's usually not any in-between time. Mm, I, so um, it's, it's pretty exhausting. As I'm not in my <laughs> early 20s anymore like I was when I first moved here, things it just gets a little more exhausting and a little more... Um, you know, it weighs you down a little bit more, but basically yeah. um, I will write before I go straight to work. So say I'm writing on Music Row at, you know, some publishing company with whoever it is I'm with. Um, we usually get there, depending on who it is, you know, um, 10 a.m. or 11 a.m. It just depends. Um, and I work till midnight, usually, um, most nights. Jeez. So depending on how late I was at work the night before, kind of... Uh, determines how awake I am that morning <laughs> right. that I have to go right. But I, you know, it, it forces you to be creative in the time that you have. So, or at least it does with me. And um, I I will go to the co-write. I've got, you know, the guitar and, you know, all my writing books, everything else with me. I kind of suit up. I go, <laughs> <laughs> I go and um, we write the song. And usually for me, I let my co-writers know ahead of time. I usually don't have time to go to lunch or we have to, like, just have something with us i just i can't afford to take breaks necessarily um and then i have to be at work at 3 30 most days i mean of course i get a day off or two during the week it just depends so every every week is different but um i just go straight to work and uh and they always make fun of me at work because i won't leave my guitar or anything in the car so i usually will shove it in the office at work (laughs) (laughs) and so i just you know come parading into work with my guitar and you know my little briefcase and everything else and Everybody just looks at me like I'm crazy, but then they get used to it. <laughs> right. So for all, for all those young writers out there who don't yeah. have a work ethic, let me just remind you that Jamie Floyd is grinding. <laughs> Jamie Floyd <laughs> has a song on Aww. all these best of lists. Uh, Rolling Stone is coming to call to talk to her, and then she's still busting tail day and night. Yeah. So that's, yeah. a, that's quite a work ethic story, man. Yeah, yeah. I mean... I just, I want it so badly, and I just, I won't take no for an answer. You know, when when I left my last publishing deal, um, we had another one lined up, another joint venture um, between the current publisher I had and a different one, Um, and that fell through at the last minute, and it was just crushing because I knew what that meant. I knew it it meant that I was going to have to go back to work, and, uh, and of course, you know, I'm human, so part of me was like, you know, I want everybody to know that that I was worth that investment, you know, yeah. even though I didn't get it, I, I want you to, you know, kind of look back and go, you know, she was worth it. And yeah. um, I, I still maybe don't even feel like I've proven myself entirely yet, but I, I really hold myself to a high standard. And um, and I feel like, at least with the success of The Blade, that that was my way of going, you know what, I did the right thing. Yeah. Like yeah. all those hours of working and all the no sleep and staying up all night and, you know, doing all my own business stuff. That's the other thing. I don't have a manager. I don't have anything. So all of the, the like, backstage of dealing with getting a cut and yeah, dealing with accounting and all those things. I yeah. mean, there's, you know, it's business. Yeah. I handle all that, too. Yeah, you know, yeah. I handle all the lawyers. I handle everybody. And so um, it was, like, three full-time jobs, <laughs> right. you know, being my publisher, being my yeah. own publisher, being the songwriter, being an artist, and being the waitress. It was... It, yeah. it is a lot of juggling. <laughs> and you're managing your cat's Instagram page. Yeah, yeah, I am also managing a cat that has 300 followers on Instagram. I'll have everyone know. <laughs> right. And so, um, so the cat, the cat has a manager. Yeah. 
Jamie yeah, would not I do also, this interview unless I mentioned her cat's Instagram page. <laughs> I am, yes. I manage a cat if anyone is interested what, in what is your What is your cat's <laughs> Instagram? What, what, how, how, I, want to, I want to see this. <laughs> it's pretty awesome. Yeah. It's, uh, her name is Mia, but it's uh, she's Italian, obviously. So it's uh, Mama Mia Meow is her name. And uh, nice. Mama underscore Mia underscore Meow. So you can check that out and... Uh, <laughs> It is, so it is, if I won't tell her she's gotten any more followers. It'll go to her head. She's totally. already had yeah, quite the attitude. She's, so. uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, let's figure out how, how Jamie Floyd became the uh, won't take no for an answer girl. I want to go back to, <laughs> to the very beginning. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. You grew up in, in West Palm Beach, Florida, with particularly musical parents. Your, your mom, Joanne, is a piano instructor who studied with some pretty heavy hitters, including jazz legend Marion McPartland. Um, and your dad is a, a phenomenal jazz guitarist who's actually written some instructional books for the famous Mel Bay Company. Um, he, he wrote a couple of books, uh, Contemporary Modal Improvisation for Guitar and Chordal Harmony and Voicings for Guitar, which is actually so sophisticated I barely even know what that means so you know that this guy knows what is up when it comes to guitar um, but growing up with with parents like that who are, who are really serious musicians what's your earliest memory of connecting with music that made an impact on you personally my earliest memory outside of my parents because they my parents would always keep um, they're set up for their gigs in our living room, hmm. like set up and ready to go between gigs. So yeah. um, the rat case and the, you know, just all the the rigs and everything were all in the living room. So um, I was always around for them rehearsing or in every um, home video from when we were little. Um, you could hear my dad in the background going, you know, just hmm. doing his runs and, <laughs> right. and doing his scales. Um, Christmas morning, that's what he's doing. I mean, he's there with all this, he's practicing. <laughs> and, wow. uh, and so, um, but commercially, like commercial music-wise, or, or uh, music outside of theirs, um, my earliest memory is being three or four years old. Um, my mom used to, um, as she was doing her makeup and everything, uh, getting ready for work, to go to the gig, she would listen to um, those George Strait records, um, that are just my favorite ever. And she would sing with them to warm up. That's what mm. she would warm up to. Mm. And so all those songs, um, like The Chair, and, you know, from those records, um, uh, the late 80s, early yeah. 90s, yeah. Um, that's what she would warm up with. Um, yeah. uh, like, nobody in this right mind would have left her, and yeah. all those incredible, like, Dean Dillon, just songs that, mm-hmm. that you, you'll never forget. Um, but I remember her singing with those, and so... I learned all of those songs from just sitting there watching her get ready. Yeah. And um, the other artist that I just knew everything um, that they had done was George Benson. Mm-hmm. And uh, all those guys kind of surrounding George and just being, like my dad was taught by Pat Martino, who is considered one oh. of the fathers of jazz guitar, modern yeah. jazz guitar. So Pat and, and George and a guy named Jack Wilkins and all these like serious, incredible jazz guitarists I was surrounded by their music, by their records, and at the time, the reason I knew George kind of over the other guys, at least when I was small, is because George was in the commercial forefront, is why. And so um, I remember my dad taking me to one of George's concerts when I was really little, and we, you know, I wrote a little note to him and stuff because I was a fan, you know? (laughs) And I took it backstage, and um, and so just, I, I remember being heavily influenced by the Georges, by George Benson and George Strait. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, the two Georges that are not usually mentioned. I was about to say. <laughs> and how about the first song that you ever wrote? 
Oh, goodness. Um, well, when I was 11, I signed a production and development and and kind of a little baby record deal with Epic Records out of New York and, and like, a production company um, mm. underneath that umbrella. And I mean, how, how did that even come about? Were you already playing shows and stuff? or? Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yes, wow. I, I had been playing gigs with my parents since I was two years old. I mean, we have videos of me and, and pictures of me singing teeny tiny with them at their cakes. And yes. um, so I've been very used to that. I mean, the night I was born, they were playing a gig, and they went and loaded the van, and, and she had me that night. I mean, I wow. went all the way from day one. And so... <laughs> We so I've been playing gigs with them from early on, and then started doing my own. And um, my uncle, uh, my uncle Rick Botari, he um, played in um, Taylor Dane's band in the '80s, huh. and he was he's an incredible musician and um, and an incredible songwriter as well. Um, and at the beginning of his career back then, he was uh, playing keyboards for Taylor Dane, and they ended up going on tour with Michael Jackson uh, for his European tour. So anything um, big though. <laughs> uh, yeah, nothing, nothing really significant that you would know of, but uh, right. <laughs> but but this is significant because at the time um, this new and upcoming producer named Rick Wake was producing Taylor Dane. Mm. Um, ten years later, Rick is the vice president of Epic Records, and my grandfather, who is my uncle's father, um, still had Rick's. Everyone's name is Rick, by the way. My my grandfather, my my uncle, and Rick <laughs> Wake was the vice president of uh, of Epic. So my grandfather, Rick, calls uh, Rick from Epic, Epic Records, who has the same phone number from 10 years ago, and says, I have this granddaughter. And my grandfather is a kind of really in-your-face Italian New Yorker. And he's like, I got this granddaughter, and you got to listen to her, you know, that kind of stuff. Mm, right. and, um, Rick from Epic Records um, said to my grandfather, you know, your family has always been so talented and, um, you know, loved working with you guys all these years, and you know what? send me her demo, I'll listen to it. And at the time, I'm 11 years old, I'm, and I've made this demo, you know, when I was like 10, singing Diane Warren songs that <laughs> Leanne Ryan's cut, you know what I mean, right. the real stuff. And, <laughs> and we send that to them, and, uh, and they fly us up there that summer and, uh, and have me learn three songs um, that night that we get there out of their catalog, you know, and I go in and cut them the next day at the Dream Factory in New York, and... Uh, they offer me the deal right then. And oh, uh, and so because of that happening, um, they developed me, you know, and they told us, we're going to put you with the best songwriters in Nashville. And they gave me a publishing deal at the time, too. And I, I had written little journals and stuff, but I had never, I mean, at 10 years old, I at least at that point, I had never written a song. Mm. And um, they flew us to Nashville for the first time in 99 or 2000. And... I would put in a co-write, my very first one, with Greg Barnhill, who has written, you know, incredible hits by my my favorite artists. I mean, he wrote Walk Away Joe for Trisha Yearwood, he wrote Half yeah. the Love, Amy Grant, I mean, just, yeah. you know, he was incredible. They put me in the room with him and with uh, Jim D'Addario, who's also another just so well-respected, incredible songwriter here. Um, so you're, you're, Greg you're what, like 12 album. at this point? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so I you're was, like, so, so today you tell people, I, I can't... <laughs> take a lunch break because I don't have time. And back then you're like, I, our lunch breaks will all be at Chuck E. Cheese. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We'll be taking our lunch break and there must be a playground. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was, um, I was kind of thrown into the room. I was maybe 13. I'm sorry. It's kind of fuzzy now. It's been 20 years ago. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> but, 
you know, right around there within the deal, um, they they put me. That is my first co-write. Um, so yeah, eleven or twelve. Wow. Scott, and, what uh, were you doing at age twelve? Um, <laughs> wow, nothing. <laughs> I think I was desperately trying I, to hide that I still played with GI Joes. I think that's how I spent most of my time. Um, now, Jamie, I, I know that you had a showcase scheduled with Epic's Nashville office in the early 2000s, uh, but ultimately that production deal that you had signed as a kid didn't mm-hmm. come to fruition. And how did that kind of come unraveled, and how did you process that at such an early age? Well, I we started working with them when I was like 11, and we by the time we signed the contract um, and were through with the contract, I was I was 17 by the time we were Jeez, done. Wow. So that's a lot of your, yeah, that's your teenage years, you know. And uh, I, so within the development deal, um, they had me write those songs, and um, they they had us record, and they scheduled this showcase that is to happen here in Nashville um, for the Nashville offices and for the Nashville kind of branch of Sony to maybe take me on, because that's what I did, and obviously I was signed to the pop label. And that's going to be a big moment for you after all this build-up. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh, because I just... I was this little nerd um, when I was a kid, and um, I like, just had my nose in every book I could find, but also in every industry publication. Like, yeah. um, they used to joke, like my NR people and stuff used to joke that um, I knew when the mergers were happening before they did and stuff, because I'd be like, <laughs> oh, what happened with that Warner merger? Now, did that happen? Wow. <laughs> they're like, That's what hilarious. merger? You know? So they're like, Sammy's 11-11-35, and she will be in all the corporate meetings. <laughs> you know, Because I was so upset because I wanted when I met people and when I met these big, you know, people in the business, I wanted to know who they were so I could talk to them about yeah. their career or about, you know, so I could have a conversation with them. Yeah. And believe it or not, that was my thought process. But, um, so we go to have this, um, the showcase here in Nashville and we schedule it, um, for me to kind of be on display for powers of being Nashville. And we, we schedule it for the week of September 11th in 2001. Oh no. Jeez. Oh, and, uh, and all my family mostly is from New York, and um, of course, all of our labels in New York, and and everyone is. Um, we were scheduled to fly out that day, mm-hmm. of September 11th, and uh, um, as you know, for the entire world, that was an awful, terrible yeah. day, and um, and it was for my family. It was for it just it was terrible, and um, as you can imagine, nobody I think was even thinking about business or what was going to happen. Everybody was so right. concerned just about the world going on. Yeah. You sure weren't getting on a plane? Wait, yeah. no, no, no. We were not going to get on a plane. Um, some of our people from the label were already in the air, and it was just really um, a scary time yeah. um, for for everyone. But we didn't end up getting on the plane, obviously. And what we did end up doing is um, the week the airports reopened, which was the week of the 26th, they flew us to Nashville to still do the showcase. And... It was a really weird situation because, um, you know, nobody was thinking about that, including us. I mean, we did, right. but of course, I'm under contract, and, you know, we were like, okay, um, everybody was willing to come, and so we, we fly here, and, um, and everybody was so welcoming and wonderful. But during the showcase, um, they, they all came to us and said, um, you know, and, and all the players that are some still in this business today were there, you know, Scott Hendricks and... Tony Brown and everybody came, um, yeah. and it was obviously somber. It was it was just a really weird time yeah. to, you know, it was just a weird time. It was it was um, it uh, it was just really bad timing for right. for so many reasons. But um, but they all came to us and said, hey, you know, you're you're really young. Um, 
you've got a lot of time, and, you know, we don't have to do this right this second, but um, we, we'd like you to come back to us and this and that because everything's frozen, as you can imagine. You know, we don't know what we're going to do. We don't, we sure. don't know. You know, we don't know what we can do. We, we just don't know how, how things are going to look, you know, and, yeah. and nobody did. And so we, we went back home, and uh, the president of, of the label at the time that I was with said, okay, look, you know, we, we actually want to give you a pop deal. Like, will you, mm. will you go ahead and just let us do that? I mean, can you just let this country thing go? Because, you know, they, they don't know what they're doing down there, but I personally have the power to do this up here, you know. Right. And he called me, and uh, he said, you know, so why don't we do that? Why don't you come here, and we'll make this pop record, and, you know, you're just going to have to kind of go that route. Um, but we'll let you make a record. It's just going to be pop record, and I'm... I told him no, <laughs> wow. and he, and of course at the time I was like fourteen or fifteen, <laughs> fifteen I think, and I, I mean I told him I, I of course wasn't nasty about it. It just wasn't me. I just right. could not be something I wasn't, and and I told yeah. him that, and I said um, I can't sing those songs, you know, because they played me the songs they wanted me to do. I was like I. I, I just, I can't do it. Right. I can't. And yeah. uh, I want, you know, I, I told him, I was like, I want to be a part of the evolution of country music. Like, I can't do this. And <laughs> wow. he was like, whoa. <laughs> and he, he was like, wow, I cannot believe you're turning this down. I can right. seriously can't believe you right now. But um, Well, if, if it had been, if one of the Georges had been George Michael and not George Strait, <laughs> then, then maybe we could have told that off. Story, right, right, yeah. right. <laughs> Well, exactly. I, I know that you moved yeah. from West Palm Beach to Nashville uh, in the early 2000s to attend uh, my alma mater, uh, Belmont University, which is well known for its music and, and music business programs. Um, but then you ultimately left school a year or two later. Um, for people who aspire to a creative career in music, what are kind of the, the pros and cons of pursuing a formal education? For, well... And for me personally, coming to Nashville um, was what I had to do. And at the time, I knew that Belmont was a gathering place for everyone kind of in my shoes. Um, and for me personally, because I didn't have um, a lot of money just on my own to independently get here and everything, I I was like, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work to get scholarships and and. Belmont will be a way for me to live here, you know, in a safe way among people who want to do what I want to do. And so I personally, I think a formal education can be very important to me. It wasn't so much the degree that I was looking for. It was more that I wanted to become a part of the community. I needed a way into this community. And at the time, um, Belmont presented that opportunity to me. Um, and it also afforded me um, opportunities to use a studio for free and, and all these things that that I really needed to um, continue my growth. And, yeah. and and I'll tell you, to this day, um, the people I met just, you know, a couple months in being at Belmont are, um, my lead guitar player back then was uh, John Osborne, uh, called him Johnny Oz or whatever, and he's up for a Grammy this year with Brothers Osborne, well, you know, is. and um, that was one of my foundational, like, founding friends when I when yeah. I got here, and, and I met him at Belmont, you wow. know, and so um, that, to this day, is one of my dearest friends, and, and so those relationships were so valuable to me, um, and I knew they would be valuable, and, and that's kind of why I took a chance, and I did leave um, a couple years in, but that was because I couldn't afford to work full-time and 
keep my grades up. I mean, I was opening a bakery at like four in the morning, working mm. from four till two p.m., and then going to class from two to nine. I mean, it was just yeah. I couldn't do it. I had to pick, you know, at that right. and for my financial situation, I had to choose, and I want and I chose to write full time and drop out. Well, you certainly were mm-hmm. continuing your education. I mean, putting in the putting in the time to write and getting those ten thousand hours that Malcolm <laughs> Gladwell talks about toward becoming an expert, and you know, those next few years were you were writing with anyone and everyone and and writing more and more songs i mean i i met you during that time period and we wrote together a bunch of times and um so kind of fast forwarding through that process of slogging it out we get to 2011 and you got your first real cut as a writer in 2011 with once which was included on ronnie dunn's self-titled debut album writing that song and what you remember about the moment you heard that it had been recorded by a major artist well I wrote once which was cut by Ronnie Dunn with Pete Salas and Philip LaRue and Pete and I had been signed uh, to the same publishers before and so he and I were very close and um, this was happened to be our first co-write with Philip and Pete and I have a really great writing relationship because as I tend to go the really dark and emotional and deep uh, route, Pete Pete can really go the, you know, happy-go-lucky route, and that's why we make really good partners, because we kind of balance each other out. Um, Pete writes some incredible uh, sad songs as well, but that day, because I was there, of course, he was trying to pull us happy. (laughs) And and so I'm glad he did, because um, we end up, I I had brought in, actually, a super sad idea that I had promised Pete um, we'd write together, and it was about how... um, you know, how it only happens once. Like, he and I had talked about this. And so he managed to spin the co-write to where we made it uplifting instead of, um, instead of you know, it only happens once and then never again. Right. <laughs> it's just the route I would have gotten. <laughs> and so um, <laughs> when we found out that it was going to be cut, um, I was actually working again. I was in the restaurant, and my plugger at the time, the same plugger who pitched, uh, the Blade to Love and Death pitched once to Ronnie Dunn, and uh, she forwarded us an email from, from Ronnie saying, you know, we're doing this. And I see this email, and I'm just like, what? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, of course, because I grew up listening to Brooks and Dunn, yeah. and, and I've been to their concerts in Florida and everything else, and so I was very excited. And it was actually what was more exciting than getting the email from him that he was going to cut it was the day he actually cut it. I remember I went to work and I was waiting tables and we were waiting to hear if he actually cut it because, you know, you never know if they're actually going to do right. it until they do it. And so I remember exactly where I was in the restaurant I worked at when I um, got the text message from my plugger saying he cut it. He just, you know, he just texted us saying it sounds amazing. And wow. and uh, and there I am. I'm like clearing. I remember just clearing these tables at the end of the night, just going my God, this is really happening, it's really oh, happening, and yeah. um, it was, that was, for me, it's just so extreme, you know, here I am, oh, you know, totally. cleaning up the restaurant at the end of the night, and then it's like, a dream of mine came true today, <laughs> you know, like, right. while I was here, 
you know, getting everybody their wine, like my dream was coming true. Like they didn't know it, but it was. It was just wow. such a cool, like it was like my secret that I had. It was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> they yeah. definitely put more pep in my step that night, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Well, so. in 2013, you wrote a couple of songs for the TV movie A Country Christmas Story, starring Dolly Parton, um, including Trouble Get Me Off Your Mind, which was performed by Brian McKnight. Um, tell us how that opportunity came about. Um, I have been very lucky to have been able to work in Los Angeles over the years um, by way of the publishers I was signed to, and then um, I would also just find myself out there when I had the opportunity uh, to get out there and write. And one of the producers I had worked with uh, was an incredibly talented woman named Eve Nelson. And Eve, um, I was working one night. Again, I was actually bartending that night, and I get a text from Eve saying, hey, you need to call me right now. Um, I've got this this Dolly Parton Christmas movie that, um, you know, Dolly wrote all the original music, but they need the other two original songs, and, and I told them you could do it. <laughs> and I'm, like, behind the bar working, and I just text her back. I'm like, I am bartending, but I can call you when I'm done. She's like, do it. Wow. So I call her when I'm done, and the bartending situation is very significant to the story. So I call her when I'm done. She sends me the script. She sends me the fact that they need the, not only is it just the song for the movie, but they need a finale. Oh, and sure. I was like, great, no pressure. <laughs> and uh, I had just written all day. I'd worked all night, and I got home, and this was like 11.30. I call her. She sends me the script. She sends me everything they need. And then tells me they need it tomorrow. Oh, they need yeah. it the next day. Hmm. I So I write what becomes the finale of this movie overnight that night, and I get it recorded. They need it recorded that morning and sent in. But So thank God, because L.A. is behind, I had a few extra hours. Yeah. And I get in, I record it, um, and I send it back to them. And that day, of course, I'm on no sleep at that point. I have to write again. I have to go back to work. Um, they, they call me and they say, this is great. And then can you also work on this song that becomes the song Brian McKnight is going to sing, which I don't know yet. Right. And um, Eve, by the way, had had the, the music kind of going, um, but they asked me to kind of come in and edit the lyric and kind of figure out, kind of just do exactly what I did to the theme, which I wrote completely by myself, mm. to what was already kind of existing in the direction that they wanted for this character. The scene that, that Brian McKnight sings our song, and he is a bartender, wow. <laughs> and he comes back from behind the bar and, like, jumps on stage to just sing one of his songs. And... I'm like, how? I can't make this up. You know, right. what are the odds that a bartender right. who just got off work writes the song that ends up in a movie for a bartender who just got off work? Sings Wait, I mean, it's just crazy. Yeah, it's That's almost funny. like a, a sign from the heavens that you're doing the right thing, you know? Every day that comes feels like a long one. Mm-hmm, I said, every day that comes feels like a long one. Oh, 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 trouble, get me off your had a good bit of success writing for TV, including the song Mississippi Flood, which was sung by Hayden Panettiere's character Juliette Barnes on the ABC TV show Nashville. Dead. 
dead and gone. Um, and you just had a song on that uh, on that thing about the Manson family, where you actually can say you had a cut by Charles Manson now at this point. <laughs> but, uh, oh my god! Yeah. yeah, all those songs that went on to the Manson movie were um, that was incredible. I, I didn't realize what a big part it was going to play um, right. until I kind of got really involved, but. I got to see the movie the other night for the first time in its entirety, and um, I just—it was—it just blew me away um, that that the, these songs that I wrote in my room in the car are like on TV for, <laughs> for all to see. It's being sung no less by Charles Manson, quote unquote. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and talk a little bit about uh, the, the difference between writing for the screen, where you know you have really clear directions and confines in terms of of the story and the tone. Um, versus just kind of sitting down to write a song in general out of your head? Honestly, I find the TV and film process having to write to a script um, actually um, easier, and not not that it's easy because it's very difficult, but easier compared to when you have no restriction. And it's funny because as I've dealt with producers and directors, a lot of times... um, I guess in, in their experience, songwriters um, can kind of feel like those um, parameters can be very limiting. Mm. But for me, I feel like they help me to be even more productive. I like, maybe it's just I'm type A and I'm crazy or something, but I really am kind of fueled. Like if you if you give me a challenge and you tell me exactly what you want, right. I love trying to give you exactly what you want. And that kind of, it just fuels me for some yeah. reason now. You know, in commercial music, uh, or just you know, just me co-writing here in Nashville, or writing by myself, just just for the, just to follow whatever emotion I'm feeling or whatever. That's a really, to me, a beautiful process and and one that I will always be a part of. But I get some kind of, <laughs> I really get a thrill out of out of seeing a script and trying to make it come to life, like yeah. trying to somehow let me grab onto this emotion and let me let me see if I can bring it to life. That that just for me is. Um, it's empowering to, to have mm. those kind of um, restrictions. Is that right. funny? Yeah, that makes <laughs> I don't know, sense. I don't know why, but it does. <laughs> um, <you know? laughs> well, you, you've released a couple of singles on iTunes, including Demons, which you put out in 2013. As an artist, your music encompasses more than just the country market where you found your success as a writer. And, you know, I know how I would describe your sound, but how would you describe it? Well, as far as content, it's, um, I would say it's, it's the whole truth and um, pretty, pretty emotional and I would think pretty um, true to life. Mm. Um, as far as my sound is concerned, I, I'd describe it as being um, kind of a, a rootsy take on modern country music with a kind of flair of R&B and kind of soul, yeah. a soul flair to it. Um, 
that that's kind of how I would sum it up. Well, yeah, it's it's you, people use that phrase "blue-eyed soul," but they only use it for male artists, you know. But I, I feel like I would <laughs> apply that to what yeah. you do as well. Yeah. Oh well, well, thanks. That I mean, yeah, I just coming from the background I come from, which is my dad is like just jazz guitar, jazz, right. you know, R and B, all of that. He he kind of really let me into that world, and I just feel like at least what I've tried to do, I don't know if I've accomplished it, but what I've tried to do is take the best of those worlds, take the best of, of what I love about country music and its history and its roots and also some of the incredible elements of, of soul, you know, whether that be R&B or jazz or whatever, in, in that kind of umbrella, under that umbrella. I've kind of tried to fuse those together um, with the lyrics that are kind of indicative of, of a true kind of country music um, foundation, you right. know, where it's very kind of in your face and very emotional. Um, I've kind of just tried to combine all of that um, and to fit my voice, which um, I feel like my voice is, is uh, kind of has a foot firmly planted in either uh, world, too. Yeah. So, Speaking yeah. of your voice, you uh, have recently re- released an EP called Sunshine and Rainbows, which includes your own version of The Blade. Um, and that song will always be very special to you, I know. But um, if you had to pick another track from your latest project that you would want to showcase kind of who you are as a writer and artist, which one would you choose? Oh, goodness. Um, I would say probably, oh, if you had to pick one like this second, I would say um, probably Sunshine and Rainbows. It's the title track of the record. Mm-hmm. It's a really great representation of of the kind of songs um, that I that I want you to expect from me. That, that song is just very, um, it's, it's kind of, the truth is kind of uncomfortable, and and I feel like in that song specifically, I kind of lay that out there with with a gentle hand. Like, here's the truth, and it really hurts. Um, but you may you're not the only one, and uh, and sometimes you know shit happens. People go places. You don't think they'll go, and when they don't take you. Put it at the end of the record because it sums it up. You know, it really is the uh, it really is the cornerstone of, of what I'm getting at, at least on this project. Yeah. Jamie, I, I have to say that as as somebody that's known you for a while, I'm I'm so happy to see the success that you're having, but completely not surprised by it. Um, and I, I'm just happy you're still taking my phone calls. Oh my um, God! But, but we are we are so um, happy to have had the chance to sit down and talk with you today. So thanks for taking time out of an incredibly busy schedule to sit down with Songcraft. Uh, well, I really appreciate it. I thank you for for uh, wanting to talk to me and and letting me share a little bit of uh, of what I've done to to get me to uh, to where we are now. But I really. I appreciate your friendship and, and always have, so you can awesome. always call me. All right. <laughs> you better take my call. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening. To find out more about our guests, stream episodes, get a sneak peek at upcoming interviews, or to contact us with your feedback, visit songcraftshow.com. 
While you're there, sign up for our mailing list so you can stay up to date with everything that's happening in the Songcraft universe. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please like our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash songcraftshow. And if you enjoy what we're doing here at Songcraft, please take a moment to leave us a rating and review on iTunes, which truly helps potential listeners discover these conversations. And we look forward to getting together with you again for the next episode of Songcraft.